This is Jamie Finn from Foster the Family, and this is The Real Mom Podcast. Hello, friends. It is episode six of season two of The Real Mom Podcast. Last episode was the first installment of the Friday 15, just me and a microphone talking foster care and life. But this episode is a good one. We have Marilee Bradley. She has been one of my favorite authors, my favorite bloggers for a long time. But today, she became one of my favorite people. I have a great conversation with her about her children, about advocating for foster children, about infertility, and making casseroles and making big changes. And it is really just a beautiful conversation because she is a beautiful woman and mother and follower of Jesus. I hope you enjoy this episode of The Real Mom Podcast. Today I'm talking to Marilee Bradley. Marilee is the mother of six kids through biology and adoption and foster adoption, and she is one of my favorite writers, my favorite bloggers. She is funny and wise and loves Jesus and loves her kids. So I'm so excited to share her with you today. Hi, Marilee. How are you? Good. I'm so glad to be here. I feel like this has been so long in the making. Like we've just been admiring each other at a distance and now finally to get to do this feels like so much fun. Yeah, I totally agree. I feel like when someone shares one of your articles, I'm like, that's my friend. My friend wrote that, but we we are not friends until right now. So now we are friends from this point forward. <laughs> it counts. I'm counting it from now on. This was Yeah. This okay, was- good. <laughs> All right. So Marilee, tell me about your family. Yes. How long of an answer do you want? I I know. Let's make it the the shortest possible with the most details possible. Yes. (laughs) I want to know how they joined your family and tell me about your kids. Yeah. My husband and I got married real young and pretty quickly on found out that we had infertility issues. Um, And while we were figuring that out, we were working at a group home. So we were parenting like six to eight teenage boys and could not get pregnant, which was a very- So living in the group home parenting? Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. We had been married a year. I was 22. (laughs) Oh, my. I would not necessarily recommend it, but it was- I was just going to say, if you came to me and like asked for my counsel on that, I'd be like, yeah, don't do that. But when God calls you to it, it doesn't matter how crazy it is. Right. You can imagine my poor parents were like, are, are you sure? You're positive oh. you need to do that. But it was an amazing experience. We loved it. We had, we did that for five years and it was beautiful. I mean, I feel like at that point we had the energy to keep up with teenage boys. Like we had the love for it. It just was, it was an amazingly positive experience, but I don't know that I would recommend it for everybody. It takes a very specific kind of background and personality type. But during that process, we found out, yeah, we weren't going to be able to have biological kids. So we started the adoption process knowing we couldn't do um, foster care at that point because we were in this group home environment with teenagers. We couldn't really do a domestic infant adoption because no birth mom was going to pick us when we were raising a bunch of teenagers. And so we decided on international adoption. And so we adopted our first child, Josh, from Liberia, West Africa, when he was 10 months old. And he's 12 now. So that was our first foray into adoption. And we honestly thought maybe we were going to have one kid (laughs) because it took years to get through that whole process. It took every dollar that we had. It was beautiful. And I would do it all over again in a heartbeat to be able to be his mom. But it was a really difficult process. And we just didn't know what God was going to have for us after that point. 
So we, at that moment, finished up our group homework. It was about a year after that. We, we quit doing that and looked into domestic infant adoption and ended up getting our foster parenting license at the same time to kind of see what panned out. And we were placed with a um, 10 day old baby from the hospital that we ended up adopting about a year and a half later. And that was our son, Danny. And then when he was, um, do you have a question about that? Yeah, when he came into your home, was it like a pre-adoptive placement? Were you into it to foster or was, was it with the goal of adoption? Good question. Our thought was we will do foster care on the foster care side. We will pursue a infant adoption through this agency. So we got into the foster care part thinking we would just do straight foster care. And because we'd had a background, we had raised 17 boys through the group home. Like we knew how to love and let go. And we thought that's what we would end up doing. So we were very surprised. And our first placement um, was an ICWA placement. Um, the He fell under the Indian Child oh, Welfare Act. Fun one. That's a fun yeah. First placement. <laughs> yeah, we could talk about that for a long time. But yeah. there's a separate set of laws to make sure that those kids are connected to their culture whenever it's possible. So we definitely did not say yes to that thinking that it for sure was going to be an adoption. That was a very open door for a long time, not knowing. Um, so when he was about uh, 10 months old, how old is he? Shoot. No, he was, let's see. He was. <laughs> this is the life of a foster adoptive mom. You're I like, know. I love my kids deeply, but don't <laughs> ask me their birthdays. Please do not. I have seriously sat on the phone with the pediatrician like, I don't know. I think it's October. I don't know what year. Please don't ask. <laughs> I feel you. We um we took our daughter when um she was four months old and she and my son were nine months and two weeks apart. Wow. And it was funny because we had said we kept getting calls for placements and we were saying no we want to space our kids the way God spaces them so like nine months apart or more like this seemed to make sense to us at the time so we'd said no to several placements that were just too close in age and then they called us about this little girl and said nine months and two weeks and we were out of excuses <laughs> so we got out the pack and play and she came to live with us not at all thinking adoption every sign was pointing to reunification um, and then about two years later we adopted her and while we were in that process, um, we did some more infertility kind of workup, found out it was really impossible for us to get pregnant. And as soon as we finished all that testing process, um, we got pregnant. <laughs> oh my word. Yeah, it made zero sense. Like it, it should not have happened, especially not when we had all these other kids running around at home. Like we had just really closed that door and um, God had other ideas. And so we had our biological son, Joel. And then a year or so later, we got a call for a little girl that needed a, what we thought was a temporary placement. And then a year later we adopted her. And then two weeks after, two weeks after her adoption, real close. No, maybe a month after her adoption, we gave birth to our second biological child. Surprise. <laughs> so we ended up with six kids in roughly seven years after thinking we didn't know if we'd have any kids. If oh we just had one, it was, it was not our plan, but that was God's plan. Now. Okay. So you just raised a whole bunch of questions for me. <laughs> <laughs> one is are you saying that your foster kids who you adopted, they, it took about a year that they were in your home for about a year before you adopted them? Um, a year and a half, two, two years, about two years for two of our kids. And one of them was one year. Wow. 
yeah, her parent, her mom had lost parental rights to previous children, and okay. so it was a more quick process. And the other ones were a little longer. Okay. My timeline at this point, I should I should go back and write it all out, but <laughs> it was a little a little less than two years for our other two kids. Wow. Okay. All right. So here's my other question: How many people have said to you? Oh, you just had to adopt your kids and let the anxiety go. And can you address that for me? Because I know that this is said to moms who struggle through infertility, then adopt, then get pregnant. I don't know why it often happens, but it does often happen. And then the rest of us say stupid things like you just had to let your pressure go. Or can you speak to that for a second? Yes. This is a huge pet peeve of mine to the point that I've made things awkward. Okay. Well, then you're the person to ask. (laughs) Statistically speaking, many people who are diagnosed with infertility will eventually get pregnant. That is the fact of the matter. So some people will just wait until that happens or they'll pursue infertility treatments and eventually a decade goes by and they will have that miracle baby because sometimes that happens. Some of us who know that we were meant to be parents, we don't really care that much about the biological piece of it, will adopt during those 10 years. So all of a sudden we have three adopted kids and then we get pregnant and everyone tells us it's because we had the three adopted kids, which is just not true. It's statistically speaking, sometimes people with infertility issues just do get pregnant. But I think what people don't understand when they say that is they make it sound like our adopted kids were some kind of attempt at infertility treatments or like somehow because we loved them, then God gave us this really good gift of a biological child. And it isn't great how that works out. And I feel that hurt in my heart for my adopted kids who were not some kind of infertility treatment. They were not second best. They were not a thing we did, but if we had known we could have biological kids, we wouldn't have done that. It was none of that. We pursued each one of them intentionally with love. We are incredibly thankful we get to be their parents. And we also have these biological kids who, by the way, feel very left out that they do not have <laughs> honest families. Who They're are like the tigers. <laughs> They're right. the ones who feel different. Exactly. They have complained that we celebrate um, the adoption anniversaries of our kids and how come they don't get extra cake other than their birthdays. Like this feels very unfair to them at this point. But this is how our family was created. And we, we did not adopt kids in order to become pregnant. And I think that's sometimes the way it's portrayed when people respond that way. Uh, I'm so glad that you said that. I'm so glad I asked that because that was such a great answer to that. I think the rest of us see it and go, oh my goodness, that's amazing. It's a miracle. And then say stupid things that we don't even realize are stupid. I am sure that I've said that. I mean, my sister-in-law, they struggled through infertility, adopted a two-year-old, mom got pregnant. So they got her placement and they had their baby at the same time. And so they went from zero to four kids in like two years. And I'm positive. I, I mean, I have to ask her, I'm positive that I said to her, like, see, this was just what you, but it, yeah, there's no consolation prize here. There's no, and, and that sort of maybe well-meaning, way of celebrating one thing can be doing the opposite to the other. Right. And people love those stories. They love the stories where you've adopted a bunch and then you get pregnant. Like it's a really beautiful thing. And I get that. But I think what people don't often understand is that I wrestled in my heart through nine months of pregnancy, wondering, can I love this biological child the same way I love these adopted kids? Because I loved my kids so much. And I had 
time to see their faces and to pray over them and to build relationships with them before they were my children, which is such a bizarre way to become a parent, but that was normal to me to the point that being pregnant felt abnormal. And I wondered if this biological child would feel like they didn't fit. Like it was all the backwards kind of ways of thinking that I think people just don't understand. They feel like, oh, this must feel so natural now after these unnatural ways of becoming a parent. And that that's just not how it felt to us. And I think we give a lot of well-meaning advice to people with infertility issues. Like if you just relaxed, this would happen. And I think when you're going through the infertility process, you know how untrue that is and also how impossible that is. Right, right, right. To just relax. So then when you have that baby and people imply that, oh, it was because you were so relaxed. I have never been less relaxed than when I had three small <laughs> children <laughs> through adoption, working through the foster care process. I mean, we adopted my daughter when I was heavily pregnant. All of the stresses of those things, that, that was not somehow a, an infertility treatment. That should have made it maybe less possible if that actually made sense. But that's just not how it works. Right, right. All right. So let me ask you this, because you just went through how these six kids joined your family. And then you said that your state would shut you down because you now had six kids. Right. Would it have been your intent to, to keep going, <laughs> to keep having children from any of the ways? Yeah, we had um, specifically bought a home where we had extra bedroom space where we thought, okay, if, if God calls us to continue to do that, that was our plan. I don't know that we really knew how that was going to work out, but we knew we wanted to remain open to what God would do, including sibling placements of our kids, you know, what what that might look like. So it was really uh, it was really tough when we found out we were going to be limited. Our state actually changed their laws, so then we could not have more than six kids in our home. So it, just all of a sudden, we were we were done. It was abrupt. There was kind of a grieving process for us, and that little piece of our identity that was a foster parent identity just changed in a heartbeat. All of a sudden, that was gone, and we moved into a different stage. And it was unexpected. It wasn't something we intentionally chose. It was just what happened because of the laws. I remember the first time I heard the phrase um, that they adopted their way out of foster care. <laughs> I've heard that before, but it was like in interacting with a family that had a lot of kids and I had said, oh, are they still fostering? Oh no, they adopted out. They adopted their way out of it. And that sounded so tragic to me at the time. You're like beautiful, but also hard that yes, there could come a point where you would adopt enough that you couldn't keep doing the thing you were really good at, which was providing temporary care, being a foster parent. But that does actually happen to some of us. Yeah, I I mean that's been part of our decision making in having this title of just a foster parent now that we're not really looking to adopt probably ever again. Um but I say that but things have already <laughs> bubbled in my heart in different ways, but this reality that I feel like God has uniquely called us and gifted us for this bizarre journey and that I have such joy in being this middle piece and then passing on either to back to biological family or on to adoptive family that it's hard for me, but it's not hard for me in the way that I think it can be hard for people. It's, I feel like it's such a, a calling that God has on me, but we've wrestled through this, you know, if we were to adopt one more than we might be at our personal capacity. But if we were to adopt two more, then we are at that state capacity. And I, 
I have struggled through what does it look like to, like you mentioned identity. And I think more than anything that I can struggle with, this is where I can struggle to most find my identity as something other than just a daughter. What was it like for you to now, yeah, you're a mom of six kids, but you're not this like foster mom taking on the world and no more in the process of adoptions. And it's such an all-consuming part of your life that like, how do you stop? (laughs) Right. No, I totally agree. And I was thinking about this just the other day, you post the most beautiful picture of your kids and this beautiful little foster love. And I just, I can read what you write. I can nod along with it. I'm an enthusiastic yes and amen. And then I also realize, oh, that's not my stage anymore. That's not my season anymore. Like I'm, I can't continue to write those things. I can't continue to make that the focus of what I do on a day-to-day basis. I am not the hands and feet anymore. So it was this wrestling of if I'm not the hands and feet, if I'm not the one who's rocking the baby, then what is God asking me to do with this love that he's given me, with this passion that he's given me, this knowledge that he's given me through our experience? And it took me some time to, to try and figure out what those pieces of the puzzle were and what God was asking me to do if I couldn't do this anymore. And it is such a bizarre thing because it's almost like you got a degree for something you can never do again. Right, right. <laughs> these years of experience, these connections, you know, you've built this network of support and you are the public face for foster care in your community or in your friend group. And then all of a sudden you're just not that. It's a, it is a bizarre transition and you don't really think about how much of your identity is in that until you aren't that anymore and, and asking yourself, what does that mean for my life? Hmm. Yeah. After we adopted our daughters, we thought that we were going to be done and I was pushing for another placement. And I just, I was saying to my husband, we have to be burning up our lives for the orphan. And he's like, we just adopted two orphans. And I'm like, no, 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 but we adopted them. They're not orphans anymore. <laughs> right, exactly. What, what is this like backward thinking? But it, it was like I was so, it's hard because when you know the need and you get the calls and it just becomes a part of your, your day-to-day life and, and what you feel like, not brings purpose because I believe that following Jesus and parenting my kids brings purpose, but it's just such a unique calling that to step away from that is I, it's hard for me to imagine doing what has it looked like for you? Like you said, when that face and the season changes, what does it look like for you specifically? Yeah, I think it's been a lot of, uh, trying to figure out what are my, what are my gifts? What are the things that I'm good at outside of just being a good mom. Cause that was what I did for foster care was I was a good mom. I worked all of those late nights and working with these babies and loving our biological parents. And I could do that. And if I'm not doing that anymore for foster care, then what can I do? And I think that's the refrain of a lot of foster parents is, well, everyone can do something. Hmm. When you think your something is providing the direct care. And then all of a sudden it's not anymore. Then it's everyone can do something. Okay. So what is my something if it's not that? And I think for a while I felt like, all right, I can be the one that brings all the casseroles. I can be the one that brings the diapers. I can be the one that's going to make sure they have those initial needs met for the people in my community that are doing this. And at some point recognizing, all right, that may not actually be the best use of the gifts that I have, the connections that I've developed over time. And so for me, it moved into a different stage of being an advocate really 
for foster kids in our community um, legislatively. Um, I spent a lot of time reading the laws related to foster kids, things that aren't being presented every year to our state legislature. Okay, so what are the changes we're looking at making? How does this actually directly impact the care of our kids? How does this impact the agencies? I love doing that stuff. And so connecting with uh, the different advocacy groups in our state, that that's what they do, um, offering to be that boots on the ground perspective for the state senator in my district. All those kind of things, I think I can offer that, and that may actually be more meaningful to foster kids than my casserole would be, because there are a lot of people that make better casseroles than me. <laughs> That is not necessarily my spiritual gift, but I am really good at reading and understanding the legislation and knowing how it will impact our kids. So finding some of those roles, taking that time to figure out how can I be using the way that God uniquely made me and the experience he uniquely gave us in these 15 years in child welfare, how can I use that best? And feeling content in that and feeling like that is making the difference I can make and being able to see how that difference um, has translated to families in our state, that's, that's been very uh, beautiful and very rewarding and fulfilling in a different way than those nights of rocking a baby were. Yeah, that's so good. And I think that you are uniquely suited for that because that sort of advocacy is really hard to do when the state is still in your home. So people have reached out to me before about being involved in these things. And I'm like, Ooh, that's, that's not my job right now. <laughs> my job is to love the kids in my home and to come alongside the families around me, but I can't be messing with the broken system when the broken system is my life. Yes, that is 100% accurate. I feel that in my soul, that you can't, when you are most in the trenches of it, you just are not in a position to do this advocacy. But what I think happens is people get out of the trenches of it and they just burn the bridge down behind them, that they feel like, well, that doesn't apply to me anymore, or we got out, or they just say, oh, the system is so broken, I'd never do that again. And I just did not feel that freedom. I felt like we moved out of that season and, okay, how do I use these bridges that are behind me to continue to do good things for these kids? And I think I, I want to encourage foster parents as you're building that network of support, as you're creating relationships with lawyers and judges and caseworkers, how can you use that best to serve these kids after you're done with this piece of it and not look at it, okay, we're finally out, shut the door, it doesn't matter anymore, but realize, okay, we're finally out and now we can say the things that we could not say before because we were worried about having the state in our home. I'm interrupting my chat to make sure that you know about the Real Mom Podcast landing page. You can find it at www.realmompodcast.com. There, I connect you to my guest. I connect you to all the resources and books and recipes and shows and everything that we discuss. That will be the best place for you to get the Real Mom Podcast experience. Visit there, www.realmompodcast.com. Okay, so what would you say specifically, I think the answer for a lot of parents probably is going to be the casserole or the phone call or the babysitting or the advice of, I went through this before. But if there's someone like you who feels uniquely gifted for that, how would you encourage someone to get involved in advocacy? for foster children, or maybe someone who is involved somehow in the system, but not a foster parent right now and wants to do more? 
Yes, I think it's about looking at what the resources are in your community. And that's going to vary so much community to community. So where we are, we have what's called the foster care review office, and they provide third party unbiased oversight of all of the cases in our state. So for me to develop relationships there, to be able to connect with the people over there, to volunteer there is a really natural fit to be able to lend my expertise. It's had a sibling that came into foster care and the case was not handled the way our state law said it should be. And we were told by the state, you know, too bad. <laughs> we're going to do what we want to do. And I was floored by this. I'm such a right fighter. This just did not sit well with me. <laughs> so I wrote her again and said, hey, remember me? I'm that foster mom in your district. I've run into this situation. I thought you would want to know you're responsible for, for providing oversight of health and human services. They're telling me it doesn't matter what the state law says. They're going to do what they want. What can I do? She got back to me right away, connected me with legal organizations that she thought would be interested. After that case kind of wrapped up, I stayed in touch with her and it took two years, but we ended up um, strengthening sibling laws in our state because of what our family went through, what my daughter went through, the connections we were able to make through this whole situation. But it started with that email to say, hey, here I am. These are the things I care about. If you need me, I, I want to be involved. I want to be a help. And that's kind of been our philosophy through all of this is to just offer ourselves and offer our experience to the people who have the power and authority to make decisions, but may not have the information about how this stuff actually works. That is so good. I, that's amazing that you played a part in like policy. <laughs> it's honestly like if I could get the, the bill number on my tombstone, I think I would want it. <laughs> It was the most, like, I wept the most. And we've joked about this. We left this meeting where they told us that our daughter and her brother could not be placed in the same home. They had found a different placement. They weren't going to move him. And I was brokenhearted. And we left that meeting and I was sobbing in the car. And my husband was just mumbling, they poked the wrong bear. They poked <laughs> the wrong bear. <laughs> That's amazing. I was not there yet. In that moment, I was totally grief stricken and felt entirely helpless. And it was like, I grieved that night. And then the next morning I was on it. And it was an email a day to anyone I could think of who would care. Every advocacy organization in our state, any politician I thought would want to know what was going on because it, it was flagrantly not following our laws like it was and it finally took hitting those advocacy organizations that did want to know that did want to help and then building relationships with them that have continued to be helpful and useful to this day but it was hard it came out of heartbreak and I think that's what so much of this advocacy stuff is is that mm. it takes that heartbreak to get us to a point that we're willing that you know what if we have to burn it down we're going to burn it down <laughs> if we can use all our connections we're going to use all our connections because we've gotten to that point of this, this needs to be made right. And who's going to be that voice for those kids? It can't be the foster parents that are currently in the trenches, right. not the biological family, because they don't feel like they have power or authority to make complaints about what's happening to their children. So sometimes it takes that voice, uh, that knowledge that you've gained to be able to use on behalf of those kids. Even when you feel like you're out and you wish you could be done with it, you just get pulled back in. That is so cool. And I, I love just the, the yes mentality of like, God, we want to do good work for these kids. We want to fight for them. And we don't know how you're calling us to do this, but we kind of like give our yes. And then you tell us what it is that you're calling us to. And I think that I can limit in my mind the work to being 
who you're bringing into your home, what is going on in your family. And I think on one hand that the biggest effect that I can have is on this one child in my one home. But on the other hand, I think when I actually, you know, at the end of my life, look back on the, it's the things that I've been able to do that aren't just loving on the kids that are supporting other families, inspiring other families. There are too many kids for me to bring them all into my home. That's what my husband says. I'm not sure that I believe it, but that I know my brother, my husband reminds me all the time too. You cannot help every child, but that can be a really distressing thought, or it can be this really invigorating, empowering. Yes. I can't bring every child into my home, but what can I do to enable, empower, encourage, inspire all these other people um, in whichever ways, whether it's advocacy or casseroles and that those things in the eyes of God, you know, I, I think often about the different people who are listening, there's going to be a you who's listening, who's like, yes, I need to go fight. And then there's going to be a casserole maker who thinks, yeah, but all I'm doing is making casseroles. But things that are done out of love for these children and out of worship for our savior, like they come out in the wash as the same. What we did out of love for others and love for Jesus, there is no higher or lower. There is no sort of, this is more important. This is more worthy. Like it's about the heart behind it. Right. I think about the two, there were two specific people, my next door neighbor and a friend of mine who provided childcare for my kids so that I could go to these meetings Mm. with human services to figure out what needed to be done. Without those people providing childcare for my kids, I could not go to those meetings. And to tell them like, this is what you did for foster care today, is that you watch my kids at my house. You watched, you know, whatever cartoon it was for an hour and a half so that I could go do this. One doesn't happen without the other. And I think you don't, you can't take care of these kids in some ways without the casseroles, without some kind of support. So when you do those, I mean, I think how beautiful that Jesus says what we do for the least of these, we do for him. We make these casseroles for him. We do this advocacy work for him ultimately. And I think that's what brings meaning and value to all parts of it, that it's not one part is important and meaningful. It's that all parts of it are necessary for the work to get done. And I think about your point that we can't, do all of the children. And somebody told me at one point, they thought I was like the Mary Kay lady of foster care. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm like constantly selling people on this and like, yes, pretend friends, you know, because I love it that much in that way. And it's hard in some ways to be that person and not be able to continue to do it. But I think if this is what I can do, if I can keep empowering people to feel like this is normal, this is doable, this is something you can use your gifts to do, then that's what my role is right now. And I I don't know what the moment's going to be like when we get to heaven. I feel like my imagination is not big enough to understand all of that, but I long to have that conversation with God to say, who was it that was impacted by all of this? Because I think, I don't know. I just keep putting my heart out there. And in some ways, you know, when you write, when I do radio stuff, I don't actually know who hears it. I don't know how they're impacted by it, but I'm going to keep speaking it because I think it's important and true. And I trust that God's going to be in charge of how all of those results play out and what is meaningful in his kingdom and what he used. And I, I feel this excitement about someday maybe understanding that picture more fully. Mm, That is really beautiful. And that I think is the hope 
for no matter what part you play in any of this, that eternal divine purpose, because even when you are on the front lines and the kids are in your home, that needs to be the divine eternal purpose, because even there, it feels like, what am I even doing here? What was even the effect of that? That child came and left or that, you know, I had to disrupt that place. Like, what was the point of any of that? So I think that motivation of being faithful to God, of living in love for others, and then giving it to him and just saying, this is, this is my faithfulness. You make it what you're going to make it. And yeah, I, I've always felt this strong motivation of eternity of just like, man, what does any of this matter ever without that? But so much more for this life because so much of it is so broken and so incomplete. We only see parts of it and it it just builds my joy and hope for that day. I totally, I feel that in my heart. I think it is the the long view that I think now at this point, this stage and season in my life and in my motherhood, I have kids that we worked with in the group home who are married. I have kids who have children of their own at this point. I got a text. So cool. One of our boys that was like, you're a grandma, (laughs) sending me this picture of his baby. And it's so precious to me to see that. But I think that girl, I was 22 when we started, I had no concept of that. I was not thinking about that at all. I was thinking about what can I do today? And this seems meaningful and important and I'm going to love these kids. I was not thinking about being in my late thirties and still being connected to these men. You know, that's who they are. And we had this beautiful experience last year where one of our uh, group home kids, we had him from ages six to 10 and then we left the group home. Well, here it was nine years later and he needed a place and we had not seen him in nine years and he came and lived with us for six months. Oh my gosh. It was beautiful. I mean, it was just, it was so sweet to see that even the redemption and to be able to hold him, you know, this child that I'd had in my lap and read bedtime stories to, and then hadn't seen for all these years. I think that's what I love to express to foster families is that while we have had a lot of adoptions, we had a lot of kids that, that went home, but they did not cease to exist because they went home. Right, exactly. <laughs> families did not cease to exist. There's a lot of the moms I'm still connected to, these children I'm still connected to, and they still need to know that they're loved, that they matter to us. In fact, this last Christmas, I put together a package of um, Christmas ornaments that one of our kids had made when he was in Sunday school, when he was like in second and third grade. And I had kept them all of these years. I mean, like maybe 12 years. And finally this year he got married and he had a baby and I said, it's time. I'm, they're yours now. Oh and my gosh. Yeah, I packaged them up and sent them back. And I told him there's one, there's a magnet with his face on it. I can't get rid of yet because it's been on my fridge all this time. I'm not ready to part with it. But these sweet Christmas ornaments he made with his own hands, I knew at that point, I'm the keeper of this story. And I'm going to hold on to these things until he's ready and at a point of stability where he can, he can have them back. And it's, it's beautiful and hard and redemptive. And I think we, when we tell people to enter this world of foster care, I want to, I want them to know that I want them to know that a decade from now, what you did is still going to matter Mm. and that you may still have an opportunity. Maybe you didn't adopt this kid and maybe they went back to a difficult home situation and maybe they're going to hunt you down 10 years from now and want that family relationship with you that the state denied them. 
who knows? You know, I think those are the doors we want to leave open by building those connections and building bridges and continuing to express love to our kids and their families as long as we possibly can in every way that we possibly can. So, you know, when you watch a movie and you're like, oh, they set that up like a cliffhanger because they're going to do a second. I'm like, okay, I have to stop our conversation because we are about to enter into episode two. (laughs) We have to revisit this same topic because what you're sharing right now is giving me chills. It's giving me joy and anticipation for, for the heaven of it, but maybe even the earth of it, of how you see it play out and, and just the joy of being a part of these stories. Yeah. And also the, the terrible. (laughs) Yeah. That's the reality of it is how many times have I been up at, you know, 10 o'clock at night, Googling the mug shots of my kids. Yeah. 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 The reality is that it is not happy endings when we commit to kids that have experienced major childhood trauma, but that doesn't mean we don't love them. We don't exactly. to love them, but yeah, it's beautiful and so, so hard. Okay. So I don't even know exactly how we're supposed to move on from here, but I'm going to try. So I want to talk about you because I, you are, you're so funny and cute. I just love you. So I want to talk about you a little. I want to talk what you're doing, eating, reading, watching, and listening to. Oh, what are you doing now? Oh, what is that question even? I mean, I'm, I'm supervising nap time and then I will have the carpool for the middle school boys in a little bit. <laughs> so we're talking about this really purposeful living. That is purposeful living. Oh my goodness. I think, yes. In episode three, you and I need yeah. to <laughs> the reality that there's these big, huge, momentous things that we do. And then yeah. there's the dishes. Yeah. And yeah. Of my life is the dishes. And I think sometimes it, when I'm doing the dishes, it feels hard or discouraging or meaningless because there have been these other big, beautiful things that I get to do mm. and trying to find purpose in the dishes. Yeah. Is, it's a task. And I think every day it's, it's a task for me to try and figure out, did I do what God asked me to do today? Whatever felt huge and whatever felt tiny and mundane, what was I faithful today? And man, that's, that's harder than it sounds some days, I think, but doing yeah, that's what I'm doing. I'm raising these six kids and I love it. I also get to write and I love doing that. I get to be on the radio talking about parenting and I love doing that. I get to lead worship at our church through music. I love doing that. It's like I'm I'm busy, but I also am working so hard to leave space for rest and margin in my life because I've figured out that's actually a necessity too. <laughs> yeah, I'm not there yet. I'm I need to learn that. And I feel like God is like giving me gentle nudges. Like you need to learn this. You need to learn. And then soon it's not going to be a gentle nudge. Right, <laughs> right. Be like a, on my face. And yeah. let me tell so. you the gentle nudge for me. It's hard for me to talk about sometimes. I'm not super public about this, but the gentle nudge for me has been that I have migraines. And sometimes that just genuinely feels like the hand of God just pressing hmm down onto my pillow that no more that's enough from you you the world will keep going everyone will be fine you now are out of commission for the next two hours three Mm. hours however long it takes to work through this and those are very intentional times between the lord and i because i can't do anything and i wish i didn't have that but i also feel like in some ways it's a strange gift of having to rest in those moments. And it's that thorn of keeping you humble that you're not the god of your domain. Absolutely. (laughs) Right. Oh, man. Okay. Episode four. That was episode four. We'll go back to that. (laughs) What are you eating? Oh, this feels like such a shamey question, doesn't it? (laughs) It's to make 
make me feel better about myself. Okay. Not well enough. That is what I am eating. Like that's, I, yeah, I don't even know if I have a good answer to that question. My oven broke recently. So I'm eating a lot of stovetop meals because we are not in a position yet to replace the oven. So it's been a lot of like soups and stews and that, that is about what I'm eating. That's such a good, fun question. I adore eating, but yeah, it is. <laughs> it's more complicated than it sounds, maybe. Yeah. All right. What are you reading? Um, I go through these phases where I read, I go to the library and I just pick up like five random books and then I cannot put them down because I know that they're due at a certain point. Apparently I have to have a due date in order to do anything. <laughs> And then I return them and I don't read anything for like a month that's longer than an article. So I'm in the not reading anything for a month phase at this exact moment, other than Bible study stuff that I'm doing. But I finished reading, I read The Hate You Give, which was so good. And I have you seen the movie? I have not. I feel like emotionally, I don't know if I'm ready for it. Really? Yeah, it was a really amazing book to read. I read it in a weekend, which it's kind of a long book, but it's obviously addressed at like youth. So it's not a complicated book to read, Mm. but I thought she just did a fantastic job of fleshing out these very real feeling characters and addressing a difficult topic from a lot of different perspectives. So that I could not put down. It was a really good one, but it was in like my stack of five books. And then after that, I'm like, all right, I need a reading break because I read all that in a weekend. And (laughs) I'll get back to stuff later. <laughs> yeah, I want to read that. That's on my list. And I want to see the movie, but I'm, I always wait until after I read it. So now yeah. I'm like in this standstill where I haven't seen or watched or read. I am the worst about watching things that hit too close to home. Like mm-hmm. I can do documentaries. I love documentaries, but even I can't watch This Is Us, which everyone, like people who don't know me are like, you should be watching This yeah. Is Us, you know, but. I can't do it. I can't bring myself because I feel like my real life is complicated and hard and emotional yeah. enough. That yeah. I have to fun, want that. I, I need something else. <laughs> yeah. All right. So you, you talked about watching. What are you watching? Oh, goodness. I really am like a, a documentary. I don't like the word addict, but I'm trying to think of a better word. So I love to watch anything that I feel like I'm learning from it. That feels like a, somehow not a waste of time. Right, right, right. Do you so, like true crime stuff? Oh, We've been goodness. in a major true crime kick. Yes. That, again, why does that feel shamey to me? But I know. Yes. It's been the true crime podcasts, which that's, oh, I mean, I have enjoyed that. But watching true crime sometimes gives me the EBGBs a little bit more than just okay. listening to it. But yes, I love documentaries and really anything. I watched Three Identical Strangers and I have not recovered from it yet. Like that. Oh, you're like the fifth person to bring that up to me in the past few weeks. I need oh to watch that. I need yeah. to watch that. Because we went through sibling separation with our mm-hmm. kids and that was such a big issue, it, it hit me in a different way than it might have otherwise. And they do a really beautiful job of talking about kind of nature versus nurture topics and it, yeah, it was very meaningful, but anything in that kind of vein that, that does center on trauma or adoption or foster care, like it, it does, I, I want to consume those things even when it's hard where the stuff that's fiction, I just, I can take it or leave it. It doesn't hit yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. It feels manipulative. I don't need that in my life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You talked about the podcasts. What are you listening to? You're oh. a podcast person. Yes. And that has been kind of a recent thing. I love, I have done a bunch of true crime podcasts and I have done, I really like history podcasts because I feel like I'm learning something I should have known, but it's in a way that I can get in. Like it's my big stress relief now is puzzles and podcasts. So I'll sit and do like a really intense puzzle and listen to a podcast. And then somehow that feels like, I don't know, intellectual stimulation. Without yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're like, I just got smarter. That yes, wasn't a waste exactly. of time. 
Yeah, I've listened to this whole series on Chappaquiddick, which I knew nothing really like, shockingly nothing about that. I listened to something about uh, the Nixon scandal, like all this stuff that is fascinating. And I feel like I should know this and I just have not ever sat down and listened to it. That's great. I, I mean, I always say this on here, but I cannot... I'm never away from my kids. Well, and I guess that's the reality of being a homeschool mom. Like, so to play a podcast is to yell at my children (laughs) on repeat for the entire length. So it's just frustrating for me. Yes. My husband inspired me by like listening to wait, wait, don't tell me while he takes a shower. I'm like, I could be listening to podcasts while I take a shower. I was wasting those 15 minutes. <laughs> I was having my own thoughts, but no, not anymore. Now right, right. <laughs> All right. Well, I have to wrap us up because this is going down in history as one of our longest episodes. And I feel like I've cut everything short because we could just go and go and go. So I want to wrap up with you telling listeners where they can find you. Yes, amusingmerrily.com is my blog, and I would love to have you there. And same thing, that's my um, that's where you'll find me on Facebook as well. And those are the two main places I interact. Um, and also, if you feel compelled to email me, my contact info is on my website. And I love hearing from people. I love hearing questions. As I've talked about my advocacy work, it's been beautiful that people have messaged me and been like, yes, I'm one of those people. What do I do? Mm. And kind of get people in the right direction and talk about next steps. So I'm, I love to be in contact with people and, and to help when I can. Cool. Well, I'm going to share your information. I'm going to link to a few of my favorite blog posts. (laughs) You have a couple of blog posts that I'm like, yeah, I don't ever need to write about that because you nailed it so hard that I'll just share this and point people to that. I love that because I feel the same way about you. Like I'll read things of yours. I'm like, yes, that is exactly how it is. That is the only person that needs to say this anymore. No one else has to write that. That's great. Well, it's mutual then. So I'm going to link to you. Everyone will be able to follow you. And and I promise everyone episode two, three, four to come eventually. So thank you so much, Marilee, for taking the time, for sharing your heart, for sharing your story and your wisdom. This was such a gift for us. Thank you. I, I loved it. And yes, for sure we'll do it again. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Real Mom Podcast. You can find us online, www.realmompodcast.com, or on iTunes and subscribe. You can find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash realmompodcast, or Instagram, at realmompodcast. Thanks so much for listening.